Dr. Stacia Dearman can help us get through some unexpected patient outcomes and malpractice litigation. She's been through it herself and is now a speaker, coach, consultant, and blogger on the topic. Dr. Dearman went to medical school at Case Western and has a master's in religion and ethics from Vanderbilt and did her residency in pediatrics at Akron Children's Hospital. She worked as a general pediatrician for a few years and has worked as a pediatric emergency medicine physician since 2004. After working at Case Western Rainbow Babies, she's now back at Akron Children's Hospital. She's the founder of Thrive, a website where she focuses exclusively on the well-being of physicians facing unexpected patient outcomes and malpractice litigation. Her experience in practice raised her awareness of the deep pain and isolation us physicians and other healers experience after an adverse outcome or in the midst of a lawsuit. She alleviates that isolation and provides insight and support around the toughest experiences many physicians will ever have. She draws on her personal story to illuminate the experience for professional healers and to educate defense lawyers, risk managers, and healthcare leaders regarding the needs of physician defendants. She blogs and can be reached at thrivephysician.com. We were fortunate to have Dr. Dearman for a two-segment special interview. In the first half, we started out talking about statistics, and it is staggering how frequently physicians get sued. And if we're getting sued that frequently, why do we never talk to each other about it? She gives us some details of her experience that led to her creating Thrive Physician, an online resource for physicians undergoing litigation. We learn about the second victim and how being a second victim can take its toll on physicians, especially amidst the isolation put upon us by the legal system. And she helps us learn how to start recovering. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Stacia Dearman, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So this is a, a deep topic and and it can be challenging to talk about. So I think it's incredible that you're actually able to discuss this as openly as you are. But to break the ice a little bit, we're going to start with some humor. And this is a true story. I didn't ask my wife for permission to tell this story, uh, but I'm telling it anyway. So recently, my wife invited someone from my son's class, my son's preschool class over for brunch. So the kid from the class and his parents. But she warned me beforehand that the father is a personal injury attorney. I wasn't so <laughs> pleased about that. I wouldn't be either. <laughs> so if you were in my situation, what would you have done? And the options being, would you have let this person in your house to break bread, allowed them in, but pretended you had something else to do so you didn't actually have to spend time with them, or allowed them in, but glared silently the entire time? I guess it would be maybe a more reasonable thing to do. But my, <laughs> my, my choices were really one of those three. What would I do? I think if my spouse had invited them, I would be too polite to just not show up. But I, I would uh, say this is a one-time thing. <laughs> like I wouldn't let them come back. <laughs> You get one. You I get one. Be this is the one. Pleasant. 
Yes. Once. <laughs> it would be hard. It, it was hard for me to hold in the glare, but I think I did a pretty good job masking it. Good. Good. But yeah, I couldn't rescind the invitation. That would have been embarrassing. So. Yeah. 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 Your relationship okay. with your spouse is definitely much more important. <laughs> yeah. Then, then, yeah. Whatever, whatever it is that I'm trying to do by making this person uncomfortable, really just making myself uncomfortable, I guess. Okay. So, so let's talk about statistics. Okay. So for the, for the physicians out there, uh, for the residents, maybe choosing a fellowship or the medical students choosing a residency, because once we're in our field, it's not like we're going to stop once we, once we learn about the statistics, but maybe it'll influence someone's decision out there. So, so talk to us about our likelihood of getting sued overall and then any particularly any particular specialties that are more vulnerable, either getting sued more frequently or when they do, for larger sums of money. So who's vulnerable out there? Well, I don't know that I would advise anybody to base their choice of specialty on this particular factor. But I would say that it would benefit all of us to have a better sense of what's going on in different specialties and particularly for a young person making a choice, what the frequency is in the specialty they're choosing. So probably the best data we have around how often people get sued and how often they get sued in different medical specialties actually comes from a study from the New England Journal of Medicine that was issued all the way back, I think in 2011. So the study already is a little bit old, but uh, there are not a whole lot of studies like this one out there. And in this particular study, they gathered data from a large medical malpractice insurance carrier. So, and the value of gathering data from that kind of a source is that it's going to give you data about claims that were opened and closed without any settlement, which the National Practitioner Data Bank is not going to record. And this particular insurance carrier was so large that the data covered something like 40,000 physicians practicing in all 50 states in all manner of specialties. So that's very helpful that it's such diversity of physicians uh, geographically as well as in terms of specialty. And what that particular study found was that approximately 7.5% of physicians in the U.S. are named in a lawsuit every year. Some people say lawsuits average a duration of one and a half years. Other sources say three to four years. In any case, it's clear that it's more than one year. So I would guess that that means that at least about 10%, maybe 12% or maybe more of American physicians are in the middle of litigation at any one time. It's quite a lot of us at any one time, even though most people cannot look around a large group of colleagues at their hospital or in their group practice and tell you who is in the middle of litigation or who has been litigated against. The other thing that that study did was uh, looked at specialties and sort of ranked them according to the frequency with which they're sued. They found that among what they called high-risk specialties, 
according to their data, high risk, 99% of physicians will be sued by the age of 65. In what they called low-risk specialties, 75% will be sued by the time they're 65. So to me, that means nobody really is actually low-risk, right? Pretty much in all specialties, you're more likely to be sued at some point than not. And in those higher-risk specialties, you also see people sued with greater frequency. So the one that comes immediately to my mind is neurosurgery, where uh, I think their data said that almost 20%, like 19.6% or something like that, are named in a lawsuit every year. So if you figure 20% are named per year, then that says to me that on average, a neurosurgeon will be named in a lawsuit roughly every five years. Some more, some less, probably all depending upon the environment that they practice in, the degree of litigiousness of the state where they live in practice, the complexity of the patients they're seeing, and any other number of factors, I'm sure. You know, I wonder if there are program directors talking about this, because if it's happening so frequently and it's inevitable, then preparing your trainees for not just complications of surgery, but what could potentially come next and will come next and how to grapple with that and continue seeing patients and doing surgeries while it's happening. It it seems like it should be a critical part of our training. I absolutely agree with you. I will say though, you know, I've been engaged in learning about this issue, talking with people about this issue and working around this issue for a few years now. And I have yet to meet anyone who has said that, oh, we were very well trained around this issue in my program. I think I meet people who say, I've been made aware that my specialty, in my specialty, I'm very likely to be sued. And I think lots of people get some tips on minimizing the risk of lawsuits, but I'm not sure really that much of any program is doing the really thorough job we ought to be doing for young physicians and teaching them what to expect, how many of their colleagues have been through it, who they can turn to, where they can turn for support, all the pieces and parts they'll need to get through it, right? I don't know. Did you get any of that kind of training in your in the course of your education? I really didn't. The first thing, the first time I ever heard a topic like this discussed was hearing you on another podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, That's it's not very been, long ago. No. <laughs> That's like 15 months or a year ago. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, no, it was not part of any of my, my training and it's not, it hasn't been part of any of the the CME that I've received from attending talks by lawyers about how to minimize your risk. Yeah, it's all about preventing. All the education is about preventing or possibly they might even get to what happens during a deposition. But yeah, they, they never really get into mentally preparing yourself for what, what it's like and, and, and what it does to you. So all the more reason for us to be talking to you today. Absolutely. It's an important conversation because I think if the message is continually around how to minimize the risk, if that's the only message we hear, then 
if we get sued, or more likely when we get sued, we feel that we failed, right? Everybody taught me how to avoid this happening. Now it's happened. Then I feel like I'm a failure. And that really doesn't help because already the whole situation makes you feel like you failed. So, you know, there, there are much better ways for us to be preparing people for this. And the plaintiff's attorney is going to use that to their advantage, but we're going to get to that later. So, yes. so I'm okay. sorry, I took you I took you off track a little bit. We were talking about yeah. statistics. So you mentioned that that neurosurgeons, what was it? You said 99% of them end up getting sued and the frequency with which they're sued is, I think, what, 20% of them at, at any given point are in year. litigation. Well, probably oh, more are in litigation at any yes. given point. Because but... I would imagine their suits drag on for a lot longer because of what they the type of things that they treat. So Possibly. at the very least, 20% of them are being sued at any given time, but probably significantly more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you also asked about like which specialties are more likely to be sued and which are less. Uh, definitely surgical specialties. The most high-risk specialties for the most part are surgical specialties, vascular surgeons, neurosurgeons, etc. OBGYNs, we all know the practice of obstetrics is high risk. Uh, and I think, you know, my heart goes out to the OBGYNs because as I think about this particular issue, I'm especially aware of the fact that if you're practicing OB, every patient encounter actually you get two patients for the price of one, or maybe even more. Maybe you've got twins or triplets, or, right? So you've got multiple patients sort of rolled into each patient encounter. Emergency medicine is a high-risk area. Some people say emergency physicians currently are sued every five to eight years. So that's a high-risk area. And it's understandable because there's very high acuity in the emergency environment. And also Every almost everything that comes into an emergency department, and I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who works in a pediatric emergency department, is undifferentiated when it comes in. Most things are undifferentiated when they come in. So if I have somebody with abdominal pain, it really could run the entire gamut of causes for abdominal pain, from a torsed testicle to appendicitis to your bread and butter constipation. So it makes sense that there's a lot of risk in the practice of emergency medicine. Also, it, it, emergency medicine, you don't have the advantage of having a prior relationship with the patient. And I think in some ways that that can protect you, right? If you've got a long history with this patient and they end up having a complication, it, and we'll get to this later, it's not an impenetrable shield, but it does it can decrease your risk of them turning to litigation. Right, right. That is certainly one of the challenges of emergency medicine, that there's no prior rapport. And prior rapport not only provides a, hopefully, a ground or a foundation of warmth in the relationship and mutual respect, but also, I think when someone's in an ongoing relationship with a patient and then that patient comes in looking a little different than they normally do or complaining of pain in a way they normally would not. If you have that prior experience with that patient, your clinical meter for what's going on with them is a little bit more sensitive, right? A little more fine-tuned. So at the other end of the spectrum, specialties that are less frequently sued would be pediatrics and family medicine, 
psychiatry is less frequently a specialty that's sued. Pathology is less frequently sued. But interestingly, pediatrics is one of the specialties that has the highest payouts when a payout occurs, probably for obvious reasons that the patient is young. And so there's a, you know, added years of life ahead of that person, uh, which results in adequate added medical needs and also perhaps an added component of compassion on the part of a jury that could influence uh, a payout. So the specialties that are the most frequently sued are not necessarily the ones with the highest payouts. So you practice emergency medicine or pediatric emergency medicine. Right. So that's a field. So given the acuity, what you said about the, the frequency, so a high frequency, but given that it's a, it's within the field of pediatrics, that also leads to higher payouts. So that seems like a subset of physicians that are going to have, I guess, greater challenges in this in this arena. Yeah, I think that might be true. I don't think we have crystal clear enough data in this domain for me to say that with any certainty. And even what data we do have from that 2011 study, I think this is a constantly shifting domain and I don't think we have enough data, basically. But I do... And I think also probably ERs, there are, there are some uh, pediatricians that are in some of the ERs working in the emergency department. There are some emergency medicine physicians who are probably treating children as well. So there's probably a lot of overlap that would muddy the waters for statistics. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing you mentioned earlier was so many of us are being sued, but when you look around the room of your colleagues, you're not able to identify anyone who has been sued. So how did we get there? And how do we get out of that situation? Oh, wow. That is a a great question and a huge one. How did we get there? Well, I think probably part of how we got there, I think there are multiple factors here. I think one piece of it is that any physician in the midst of litigation will be strongly encouraged by their defense lawyer or by representatives of the hospital to keep talking with others about their case to an absolute minimum. The most common advice is something like, don't talk to anyone. So that is one piece, prompts us to keep it to ourselves. But I think- What's what's the reason for that? How come we're not allowed to talk about it? I've So personally, just so the audience knows, I've been sued. And so what I was told was, if you talk to anyone about it, they may need to be deposed. So if I, if one of my patients has a complication or a, even a perceived complication and we go to litigation and I get served, I'm told, so first, you're, what you're told is immediately call your lawyer, right? That's the first thing you need to do. And, and then the lawyer is going to tell you, don't talk to anyone about it because if you do, they may, you know, the, the uh, plaintiff is, plaintiff's lawyer is going to ask you, well, have you spoken to anyone about it? And if you do, that individual may need to be deposed. For what? I can't understand because whatever happened already took place. So 
It, it seems a, str- a strategy that works greatly to their advantage because then they're able to isolate. Right, us. right. So I think let's let's break that apart a little bit. I do think that is the advice people commonly hear. Don't talk to anyone about it. But I would like to break that down a little bit and make sure that people know there are certain kinds of relationships that are protected. So there are some people that you can safely talk with and they will not be deposed. And among them are your spouse, someone who is engaged with you in a professional relationship providing care to you. So that would be your own physician, a psychologist you might choose to see, any any other type of counselor whom you're engaged in a professional confidential relationship, clergy person or a spiritual advisor, that is also a protected relationship. Uh, and certainly your defense lawyer, that's a protected relationship. And then additionally, probably the risk manager at your hospital and the claims manager, whatever entity is providing your medical malpractice insurance coverage. Those are all protected settings. And the second piece would be to think about, well, what is it that someone would want to depose this person about? And what they want to depose them about is the details of the case, the medical details of the case and the events that occurred. They are not going to depose someone to talk with them about the fact that you told your best friend that a lawsuit is in progress and it's deeply stressful to you and it's breaking your heart and a patient of yours was, you know, unexpectedly injured when you were performing surgery. The emotional content is not the details of the case. So if I'm a defendant and I'm deposed, that lawyer will ask me who I discussed the case with and what they're talking about is the details, the medical details of the case. So you want to be careful to be just choiceful about who you discuss those medical details with. Now, most hospitals today offer opportunities that are legally protected for discussing that very thing, the medical details of the case. And those legally protected situations are things like morbidity and mortality conference, uh, peer review, a formal peer review, a formal root cause analysis, Anything that really is formally under the umbrella of quality improvement is protected from legal discovery by a plaintiff's attorney. So I think it's hard after your patient's had a bad outcome to bring that to morbidity and mortality or to participate in that peer review conversation, but I think we should take advantage of it. I think it's our opportunity to explore medical details and seek out answers to questions we have about whether the care we provided could have been provided differently or should have been provided differently. And then seeking emotional support is, is, another, has an, is another objective altogether and uh, is not the same as discussing the medical details of the case. That makes sense? Yes, I still still seems to me a little nefarious on the part of the plaintiff's attorney that these are the rules 
it seemed it does seem to me strategic in order to isolate us but i think oh, yeah. taking that into account uh we we should try to be within the confines of those rules as non unisolated if that's a word uh, as possible yeah. uh, and i think and and we're going to be and we're going to be getting to that because that's that's the theme of today's talk right yeah. is 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 how to get through yeah. it so i think an incredible example of how to get through it is you oh. <laughs> right i have so much admiration that you're able to talk so openly about one of the most difficult experiences of your life so if you could share that with us today i I'd, I'd really appreciate it sure so my particular case and the life experience that i had that brings me to working on this issue today is that I was working in a pediatric emergency department in a community hospital, different from the hospital where I practice today, and saw a young woman on a Friday afternoon. She was a young woman with some underlying medical issues, but generally doing pretty well in a, a contributing member of her family and her community. Saw her over the course of several hours, ordered a number of tests, thought she looked well. And at the end of that period of maybe five or six hours, talked with her and her parents. And as a group, we decided that it made sense for her to go home and follow up with her doctor on Monday. So I discharged her home at the end of the day, like 5 or 6 p.m. on a Friday. I came back to work on Saturday. I was going to work an evening shift, so I came in at 5 p.m. And very shortly after I came on duty, I was approached by an ear, nose, and throat specialist who came to let me know that one of the patients I'd seen the day before was now in the ICU. And when I inquired further, he told me that this young lady who I discharged home the day prior had arrested that afternoon at home. Yeah. EMS responded, could not secure in their way. They transferred her to a freestanding emergency department near her home where skilled people were on duty who still could not secure an airway and flew her to the ICU at the hospital where I worked, where this ENT had secured an airway. You can imagine that was some time after she arrested, quite a lot of time elapsed. So as soon as he told me that, I immediately knew that her prognosis was not good at all. And I really have to say it was an experience that sort of left me feeling disoriented in the moment, sort of an out-of-body experience. It reminds me of times when I've gotten a phone call to tell me that someone I love has died. I felt really stunned, ashamed, guilty. I really felt terrible. And that was the beginning of a very long journey. Those feelings didn't pass quickly. For some months, I had a lot of questions about what, if any, role I had in her death and whether I could have prevented it. About a year after she died, I learned that I had been 
named in a lawsuit. I wasn't surprised. Uh, and probably about two and a half years after that, so three and a half years after she died, I went to trial and spent about three weeks in a courtroom as a defendant in a wrongful death case around her death. It was really one of the more complicated life experiences I've had. It was a marathon. It was draining um, and impacted on me, you know, personally as well as professionally in so many ways. I mean, I'm, I'm really, like most pediatricians, somebody who is in pediatrics because I love my young patients. So I felt her death very hard. And I, interestingly, in the midst of my trial, I stumbled upon a TED Talk on the subject of physician suicide. I had not previously been aware of how prevalent physician suicide is. And so it was only when I got halfway into it that I realized what it was about. Immediately, I thought to myself that I don't know what all the causes of physician suicide are, but I am absolutely certain that what I'm going through has to be one of them. So it's really right in the middle of the trial that I started to realize that um, I felt a need to begin to break open the conversation to alleviate some of the isolation that we as physicians feel in the middle of this experience and to start just generating conversation and resources for people going through it. And so that's what I've been doing since that time and to this day. When when you were in the middle of all of that, yeah. how did you how did you get up start your day and see patients. I just, I, I can't imagine, you know, going through this and then having to muster the confidence that it takes to continue doing what you do, right? It's such a, it's such a blow. How did you get through that? How did you get through that and continue being able to help people? Wow. That is, that's a good question. I think, well, <laughs> For one, I was still paying off my student loans. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I know that wasn't on our on our list of pre-discussed questions, but as I'm yeah. you know, listening to your story and trying to put myself in your shoes and and thinking what what you're thinking, because uh it just having been sued myself for something, you know, that pales in comparison to to something like that. You know, I, I had to get up and see the patients the next day after learning that. It was a blow to my confidence. And 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 thankfully, the per- first patient that I saw, you know, was one of my regular patients who was doing great and had nothing but thanks. And, and you know, that really helped helped me to get started. But but you know, I just I, I just can't imagine having to to continue working in that situation, doing what what you keep do. putting one foot in front of the other. I think I cannot yeah overstate the importance of the support of people who reached out to me in my workplace. So I certainly, you know, immediately after her death, within a day or two, uh, I reached out to my medical director. I was the assistant medical director of that department at the time. And I reached out to him because I wanted him 
partly to hear what had happened from me first, but also I needed to talk with people I respected about what had happened, whether they would have done anything differently. What I had done for her, just the questions we all have, like, what did I miss here? I reached out to him and I also reached out to someone who is really only a year or two older than I am, but has been in practice longer than I have, took a more direct route into medicine and is someone whose clinical skills I really respect. So I reached out to both of them to talk the case over with them and just to reflect on it a little bit. And both of them offered important words of support in terms of just reminding me that they viewed me view me as a gifted physician. So that was really important. I think also, you know, I'd been working in the department that I was in at the time for at least 10 years, I think, at the time when this happened and had close relationships with a number of nurses and some of the social workers. So a tiny handful of those people saw that I was struggling. They had been on duty with me when we saw this young lady and they reached out to me with words of support. They they just, I think, saw in my demeanor that I was really taking it hard. One nurse in particular just came up to me at one point. She's sort of a religious person and she came up to me and said, you remember that you don't get to choose who lives and dies, right? Quite honestly, I did not remember that at that point. And those were very, very valuable words. I mean, obviously, I remember them now more than seven years after the fact. Uh, Another social worker who had transitioned from our department into the intensive care unit where this young patient became a patient came to me to check on me when she realized that I had been the person taking care of her in the ER. So I think those things, those reminders that other people saw my commitment to my work and recognized that being a compassionate soul, I would be hurting, those things were absolutely essential to my survival in that time. I I think there are two lessons there. I think one is you're going to be relying very heavily during this time on your social system for support. But at the same time, if you are not the person who is who's being sued, if you know of someone who is, recognize that they need you and reach out to them. Don't wait for them to come to you. Talk to them with, with words of support and let them know how valuable you are they are to the system and to their patients. Yeah, I think that's really important. And this all, what I'm describing, these people reaching out to me, that all transpired long before I was sued. So I think that's the other piece that we have to remember that even though we know, let's say that every surgery carries a risk of an adverse outcome, or just in the course of seeing people, we're going to see adverse outcomes. Still, sometimes those adverse outcomes really hurt us. And to just reach out to one another and check in after we're exposed to those hard things, because we invest ourselves in trying to ensure a better outcome, right? 
And when you're standing outside it as a somewhat objective outsider, you can say, oh, well, of course a baby with meningitis may or may not make it. But for the person who's invested in caring for that baby and wants to see the baby make it, there may be some heartache if they don't. Right. So the the topic of this discussion is litigation, but at the same time, it's any negative outcome in in any situation like that. When there's a negative outcome of a patient, it's going to be important to to heal. And I think that segues into um, one thing that I've heard you talk about, and that's the second victim. So tell us what is the second victim. So you know. This really was a, an important piece in my healing process that probably maybe 10 or 11 months after my patient died, I don't even remember by what series of fortuitous events, I stumbled across a brief but very eloquent little essay written by uh, an internist at John Hopkins named Albert Wu in which he pointed out that when patients are harmed, his essay was referring to medical mistakes, but subsequent literature has said medical mistakes or any other situation where a patient is harmed. Um, When patients are harmed, we also experience an injury many times. If we wonder whether we could have prevented that injury or wonder whether we had a hand in it, then we are also harmed. And so he really coined the use of the term second victim to refer to that physician who is injured when their patient is injured in some way. So in encountering that essay, I was touched. I was moved by it. He describes very beautifully how distressed a second victim can be. And when I read his description, I immediately recognized my own experience. That was enormously helpful to me. Because at that point, I was almost a year out from the event and I was still struggling with feelings of grief and guilt and self-doubt and wondering about whether I would ever feel really great about practicing medicine again and starting to really beat myself up over the fact that I was not able to shake this off because that's really what we're taught to do in medical school and residency, somehow shake these bad outcomes off. And I wasn't shaking it off very well. So when I read his description and I realized that I was not the only person to go through this, it was a huge relief to me. I started to think, oh, it's not that I'm weak. It's that I'm compassionate and I'm reflective. And so I'm suffering in an ongoing That's way. That's what I was thinking. Actually, as you were describing it, I thought this is actually one of her strengths as if your inability to shake it off speaks to your compassion and your empathy for your patients, right. how you carry them with with you, you know, long after they've they've left the emergency room. You're you know, even the ones that don't have outcomes like this. I'm sure there are many times when you're still thinking about them, which might interfere with your ability to carry on your day-to-day existence because you're thinking about your patients and that doesn't make you weak. It makes you strong. It makes you a better doctor. Right, right. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's part of what I learned that there are these vulnerabilities embedded in our strengths, 
right? There's an array of strengths and classically we know are essential to an excellent physician and among them are compassion and self-reflection and diligence, right? Conscientiousness. Within those strengths are embedded these vulnerabilities. The more compassionate I am, the harder I'll feel it when things don't go well for my patient. The more diligent I am, the harder I'll feel it if things take an unexpected turn or I feel like I've missed something along the way. So, right, you're exactly right. So then I I became quite fascinated by this concept of the second victim because it spoke to me so deeply and it was so healing for me that as I came out of my lawsuit with this newfound drive to teach other physicians what I had learned by dint of experience, I started to explore the literature a little bit. And I learned that after Dr. Wu wrote this essay, which he did in the year 2000, long before my lawsuit, there was this whole explosion of research which took place, which continues to this day, into the experience of the second victim. And it's really fascinating literature insofar as it makes it clear that, first of all, that we physicians are not the only second victims in healthcare and healthcare givers are not the only second victims who exist, pilots and air traffic controllers and all manner of first responders, police, firefighters, et cetera, members of the military, all are vulnerable to become a second victim. And this deep, somewhat earth-shattering life experience that I had, the emotional experience that I had, is classic of second victims in every domain. So it's really not a doctor experience. It's a human experience that I had, right? A very complex human experience. Well, I think for today's episode... We're going to stop here because I think you've covered extremely well, you know, what happens with regards to who is likely to be sued and what happened in your situation. And then, you know, this, this concept of the second victim, but I think for the next episode, we'll be covering how we can get through it. So you're going to help us get from we've been served to walking us through what it's like and then how we can heal from that. So I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us today and to really reveal so much of of what you've been through. Again, I, I know I said it, but I'll say it again. I can't imagine how challenging it must be to talk about such such a subject but you really have handled it with such grace and and you're allowing your experience to help so many physicians so thank you thank you my pleasure that was dr bradley block at the physician's guide to doctoring he can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts if you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.